Did anyone ever get this growing up? Just wait till your dad gets home. Like anybody get that growing up? Anybody get the line like, you just wait till your dad gets home? Raise your hands. Can anybody relate to that? Okay, quite a few of us. Maybe a little traumatizing, maybe. Okay. Um, not, I, I, uh, I know whenever I come home from a long day, uh, sometimes I won't get home till like right when dinner's starting. And I can tell at the mood at the table what's been happening, right? Like maybe sometimes Suzanne looks like I'm done. Maybe Charlotte looks like she's committed a crime. Like I don't really know, but there's something there that I can tell. And a lot of times I'm like, okay, dad's home. Let's see what happens. And here's the thing. Um, and and we're, we're egalitarian in our home, so it could be like, wait till, sometimes we're like, wait till your mom finds out, right? That's even more scary. For me, I grew up with, without my dad, but with my mom. And so I didn't have the luxury of that line, wait till your dad gets home. It was more along the lines of my mom looking at me and saying, wait till we get home. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not good. You know what I mean? And um, a matter of fact, I remember, because I grew up in this little small church out in the country, my mom would lead worship for like 20 years. And because of that, I had to sit on the front row. But we had, uh, we were charismatic country. You know, that's a thing. And so being charismatic country, like worship kind of just went longer. You know what I mean? Like an hour. I'm not joking. And so like as a kid, I had to stand up and my mom would look at me and be like, stand up. Look, you know what I mean? Like kind of snap her fingers. And I'm like, oh God, you know? And so it was always like a fear, like, okay, I don't want to mess this up. And, um, and, and I'm not, I'm not condoning this. I'm not celebrating it. I'm not trying to critique it. But a lot of times I'd get a spanking, right? Uh, for different ways I would act. And I remember one time being so scared when we got home that I rushed in first before my mom, put on five more pairs of underwear, and then met her uh, in the living room. I was like, okay, let's get this over with. Here I am. You know, like a lot of us, it's this almost like a terror that builds up. Like you just wait, you just wait till your dad gets home. You just wait for this thing. Uh, and I think that kind of relates to what's happening here. Malachi is writing to a people around 500 BCE, um, and they were a people who had just returned from slavery in Babylon. And on a larger scale, over 200 plus years of slavery in Assyria and Babylon. And you would think people coming back from slavery for so long have learned some lessons. Like they were learning to like love God more, love each other more, like have more desire to be good to this world and, and interact in the ways that Yahweh wants, but it wasn't happening that way. Like we read in Malachi here that there were these, there were these really bad things happening. Like the priesthood, for example, was corrupt. They were the most corrupt. They were like the, the mafia there running things. You had people that their worship was heartless. You had divorce and infidelity rampant. You had a social injustice being ignored. You had people's tithes, which tithes and offerings were a way to recognize God's provision was just being neglected. All these things that kind of got them into trouble in the first place were the things they were going back to. And it wasn't just that, though. It was getting, it was getting worse. Matter of fact, read here with me uh, and it'll be on the screen, chapter 2, verse 17. It says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you asked? By saying, All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, Where is the God of justice? So think about this. 
things were so bad, it was so corrupt in Israel that they believed that the bad guys were the good guys. Like they actually believed the bad guys were the good guys and they still questioned where was God's justice in it all. Like that's how backwards and messed up and twisted it all became. And what they were wanting was this covenant renewed. Now, there were a, a few different covenants we find. Like there's a covenant with Noah that we read in Genesis about how God would never um, bring genocide again to the world. There's a covenant with, with Abraham that he would make Abraham and his lineage, his people. And there's a covenant he has with David where his presence would be near. That you wouldn't have to question how near God's presence would be. That when David's son Solomon dedicated the temple he had built, fire came down from heaven and filled the temple. And the temple was this place where if you always wondered where God was, you just showed it to the temple. And then the presence of God would be there. And you would have like a place like of being reoriented, re-centered in your center being. And they haven't had that since they got back. It's been hundreds of years without the presence of God. And they were going, we want God's covenant. We want God's favor back. We want God's presence. And yet they weren't willing to do the things needed to even create a space for God's presence because those things would be painful. And they didn't want to experience pain. And so Malachi is the last prophet, like he's the last hope before it all gets shut down. At least we know now with hindsight being 2020. And so Malachi is like crying out to them, listen here, don't miss this. And so in verse one of chapter three, it says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. This was a promise of a Messiah, someone who would come. Now, there's two messengers here, and they're like, okay, what does that mean at that time? They just know that there's somebody who's going to show up one day, and they're going to bring God's presence back with them, which they're excited about. Yay, we'll get God's presence back. And we know, looking back on this with some, some clarity, that two messengers prepare the way of the Lord. That's John the Baptist. We read that about him. And we know the other is, is Jesus. But look how it picks up in verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. And then verse 3 says, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. So it sounded really nice that this one is coming one day to bring back God's presence but then we read that this person coming is going to bring a lot of pain. Like, just wait till God shows up. Just wait till your dad gets home. Like, there's some kind of, like, tension building up. Can you imagine hearing this? Can you imagine being so brainwashed and, you know, you're lost in the whole culture and like, okay, up is down, down is up, in is out, right? Like, bad guys, good guys, etc. And then you hear this, you're like, okay, we're going to get God's presence. And then you hear this part, that when God comes with his messenger, pain, lots of pain. Like, can you imagine, first off, can we all agree that putting metal in fire must really hurt? Like, if you went into fire, would that really hurt? 
right? I barely can hold like a, like sometimes when I go get coffee, I ask for two cups because my hands are so tender, right? I can't hurt the tender hands. Like it hurts. I don't have enough calluses sometimes. And so I have to get two cups. Can you imagine being in this refiner's fire and the, and, and then the heat in that? So they're like, oh my God, like that's intense. And then launderer's soap was this really, the closest thing we could come to would be bleach. Bleach. Because it was used to whiten robes. All right, so, and there probably wasn't really any, I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's anything ethical about it or not, but I just know that like, you know, this was really gonna hurt. You gotta scrub it really hard. Like if you're hearing this at this time, you're thinking pain, lots of pain, and nobody likes pain. Like nobody wants to be in a refiner's fire. Nobody wants to be scrubbed down with launderer's soap or bleach, much less. I mean, you know, like that sounds super intense, and I think we all can agree on that. And, and yet for a lot of us and for them, that's kind of how like we end up thinking about God. Now, of course, we know with some hindsight that a refiner's fire is used to get the dross out, the impurities of the metal, so that you can have something very pure. We know that the soap was used to make something very white and beautiful again. And so we want those things. We want the, the beauty and essence of something. We want the, the purity of something. And yet we don't want the pain in that thing. That we have low thresholds of pain. And a lot of us can really maybe even only relate to God as God being that pain full. And so here we go. Here's the tension we have. And we especially don't want to feel all that pain when it's alone. Because pain in isolation can be so much. Uh, studies on the brain have shown over the last 20, 30 years especially, that when a baby is born, that baby's limbic brain, there's three parts of your brain. There's a brain stem which allows you just to breathe and blink and urge and crave and live your life. There's your frontal lobe, which allows you to reason and make decisions, have a voice. But then in the back of your brain, there's something called a limbic, and the limbic is your feeling center. It feels like it's in your chest, but those are just organs here. In the back here, your brain is where you're really feeling everything. And they say that when a baby is born, of course a baby's frontal lobe isn't developed at all. Like they don't, they can't say anything. They only can scream. But their limbic is anywhere between 95 to 99% developed, which is crazy to think about. That babies know exactly what they're feeling. They just can't talk about it. They know exactly what they're feeling. They know exactly what's happening in their bodies. They actually know exactly what their needs are. They just can't get that across to you except by crying, and then you have to learn the, the different cries of, of what they're saying. And so I was thinking about that, how that, like, for Maxine, our, 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 new, our, our youngest, our three-month-old, like, her cries, man, are so intense. Like, you look at her, and she'll, sometimes she'll get this quivering lip, and it's just because her mom went to the other room, right? And all she knows is fear. Like, all she knows is, and she doesn't want dad there. Like, dad, you can't give me the milk of life. I'm not happy with you, dad. I need mom. So she's crying out for mom. She just wants to be near mom. And, and so all she knows is this intensity of pain in her life. 
and yet you hold her and try to comfort her. Um, for Charlotte, our oldest, she's five. We have a lot of boo-boos in the Abadie household, right? Like boo-boos go down a lot. Um, and when Charlotte gets a boo-boo, uh, I know that sounds weird, I keep saying boo-boo, but when Charlotte gets this pain, um, she needs attention immediately, immediately. Like she doesn't sit on this pain and then come home later. And we'll talk about the pain. Like when she's hurt, she's like, daddy, I hurt. I'm hurting so bad. I hurt, you know, and she'll point to it. And if I were to say to her, whatever, and move on, guess what she's going to do? Daddy, I'm hurting. Look, daddy, I'm hurting. And sometimes I'll look at it and I'm like, there's nothing there. Like, I don't know how you're hurting. What, what happened here? Is this like phantom pain already in your life? Like you're too young for this. And she's, she'll, she'll like, no, and guess what I have to do to make it better? I got to kiss it and get a princess Band-Aid. Like those two things must happen at all times. If I get a regular Band-Aid, get out of here with that junk. Like give me the real stuff. Like give me the Band-Aid. And a lot of times we're faking pain. See, she doesn't know that I'm onto her, but I'm 40 and she's five. A lot of times she's faking pain because she just wants the princess Band-Aid, right? But I give in anyway because that's pretty cool having princess Band-Aids. All that being said, what she's wanting though is to be seen and comforted in her pain. There's something about giving attention to that pain that allows her to be maybe less lonely, less in pain, less like in fret, like to be able to go, okay, it's going to be okay here. Yes, there's scratches on my knee. Yes, it hurts, but my dad sees me. And I think that's kind of what we want with God. Like, don't we kind of, weirdly enough, have boo-boos? <laughs> and we just kind of want God to look at us and see us, maybe like kiss it, maybe give us a princess Band-Aid, tell us it's going to be okay. Like, have you ever even wondered that about God in the first place? Because when we think of maybe just this Malachi passage, we haven't that we think that one day God's going to come and buddy, he's going to bring some pain and you're going to deal with it because you need it because you need to be cleaned up what you've been doing. Like I, I know for me, that maybe isn't how I talked about God for many years, but it's what I really ended up believing about God. I, I called it, there's the God I would talk about and the God I would take home with me. And this really came into focus several, several years ago, and, and I want to share a little bit here with you all because uh, there's a lot of you who are new and maybe don't know this, but um, so several years ago, about four, almost five years ago, uh, I found myself easily at the, the lowest point of, of my life. And I was pastoring here at Christ City. I've been a pastor for many years, been preaching, obviously, for a long time, um, and I remember in the spring of 2015 becoming incredibly lonely, like the kind of loneliness that was unbearable. And I didn't know it was loneliness at the time. I just knew it to be uncomfortable feelings, uh, feeling a lot of pain about life, life not working the way I wanted, feeling that God was asking things of me and for change, and I didn't want that change to happen. Um, I, I didn't want to change as a person and give up X, Y, and Z things. And, and I remember coming to a point where I had to write a sermon and in, in that spring. 
and just thinking, I'm done. But what was scary about me saying I was done, it wasn't like I was done writing that sermon. It was more like I was done with everything. Like it was that extreme. I was done with life. I was done with marriage. I was done with the church. I was done with God. I was done. Like it was that strong. It was like unhealthy Enneagram 8 done, right? Like where you're just like, nope, scrap it, burn it, move on. And it was scary because I knew what that meant inside for me to say that. Um, And then I found these really unhealthy patterns like spiking in ways I'd never seen before. So I was, I was declining fast, and no one really knew it. And, and I remember this thing inside of me going, I keep talking about this God of love and mercy and grace who's with others in their pain, but I never get that. I get a God that tells me, you better get it right, or I'm going to come fix it for you. Like, just wait till I get there. Do it differently, Robin. You're messing up. No, I'm going to, while you stand up here and preach, I'm going to stand in the back and critique you for what you did that morning. And how, no, you got that wrong. No, that Greek was wrong. No, that application wasn't good. Like, that's how I felt. I felt just that judged, but not by others, but by God. And I found it just unbearable. And so I was done. And luckily enough, I had some, um, some, a couple of friends at that time that were able to direct me to go to treatment. So I went to treatment because I just found there was a lot more going on in me than just getting like a shot of the Holy Ghost, right? Or learning a passage of scripture and applying it to my life, believe in the gospel, all that stuff that we try to do that may be helpful at times, but honestly, the long-term effects don't stay with us. And so I found I need to go do more work on me. And, and while I was in treatment, I realized that I knew all these things about God, but I didn't really know God because I didn't really feel like God knew me and wanted to know me. And as I started diving more and to be able to talk about my feelings and process it, I found that slowly but surely there was a God that wanted to be with me in my pain or to put really bluntly a God that wanted to be with me in my feelings because there was a God who also had feelings. So I never thought of God as really one having feelings. I never thought of God as one wanting that like felt sad, like I feel sad, that felt angry when I was angry, that felt hurt when I was hurt. Like I never thought that there was this being that had these, this emotional center that I could somehow interact with because at the core of me, as a baby when I'm born, if, I'm, if the thing I'm given when I'm a baby at 99% capacity are feelings, don't you think that's what God wants me to interact with? Like, isn't that the thing God's going, I need you to be, like, interacting with that a lot? Because that's what allows us to be fully human. And yet, I was told and taught growing up to get over it. Don't rub it. Big boys don't cry. Move on. It's not as painful as you think. Turn a blind eye. And so, I started separating myself from the essence of who I am and then try to relate to God through a frontal lobe that that's fine, but ultimately not enough. I needed more, and I got to the end. And I found that when I came back, everything had to start changing, and that I needed God to look and be different to me. And so that leads us then to this second reading this morning. This is from the epistle reading in the lectionary. I'm just going to put it on the screen here, and I'm going to put it in the message because I really believe it communicates this passage in in a beautiful way. Since the children are made of flesh and blood, it's logical that the Savior took on flesh and blood in order to rescue them 
by his death. By embracing death, taking it into himself, he destroyed the devil's hold on death and freed all who cower through life, scared to death of death. It's obvious, of course, that he didn't go to all this trouble for angels. It was for people like us, children of Abraham. That's why he had to enter into every detail of human life. Then, when he, became, when he came before God as high priest to get rid of the people's sins, he would have already experienced it all himself, all the pain, all the testing, and would be able to help where help was needed. Just look at those last, that last sentence there. It says, he would have already experienced it all himself, all the pain, all the testing, and would be able to help where help was needed. These two words, pain and help, pain and help. The word pain in the Greek is pasho, and it means to be affected by pain. Jesus was so human because he was human. He's as human as you, that he was actually and literally affected by pain like you and I are. And the word for um, help is this word, betheo, and it means to be relieved from pain. So he's affected by pain so that he can help relieve from pain. You and I, what this passage tells us, if you are a follower of Christ, have someone, and it's weird enough, and I just don't get it sometimes. I'm like, we're talking about magic. What is this? But it's, it's a lot, so just bear with me. We literally have Christ fully human and fully God at the right hand of the Father right now. I know that's a lot for the brain. Go to Alpha. We have God in Christ fully human, fully God, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, who experiences pain in the present, who experiences tears in the present, who experiences loneliness in the present. Um, who sees you in the present? And me in the present? And friends, that's a big deal. It's a big deal to have a God on your side who actually feels everything you feel with you in the moment and sees everything you're going through in the moment and isn't telling you, you better get it right or I'm going to come down there and fix it for you. But a God who's in it with you. And I don't care about all the theology in the world. That won't help you in the moments when it's just painful because you don't need somebody to come tell you how to think differently. You need someone to come sit beside you and say, I see you. I'm sorry. Here's a princess band-aid and then give you a hug. That's where it alleviates the pain because it's hard being human, y'all. <laughs> it's hard living through this life with all the ups and downs it takes a lot out of us. And yet, the pain's part of life. 
and we keep avoiding all the pain, we miss out on so much more that there is to life. You know the line, no pain, no gain. No pain, no waistline. <laughs> no pain, no whatever you want in life. Um, there's a quote in your bulletin by Henry Now, and I'll read it. It says, suffering invites us to place our hurts in larger hands. In Christ, we see God's suffering for us and calling us to sharing God's suffering love for a hurting world. The small and even overpowering pains of our lives are immediately or intimately connected with the greater pains of Christ. Our daily sorrows are anchored in a greater sorrow and therefore a greater hope. Listen, God's not looking down from heaven going, bro, I bore a cross, what are you complaining about? Like Christ looks at us, wherever up is, wherever, I don't know, I don't know where he is, but in the right hand of God the Father looks at us and says, I see your pain and I weep with you and I'm sorry and I get it and I'm not leaving until the pain passes, but also the pain is what will help refine you into changing to become the person you want because in the pain is the character. In the pain is the transformation. In the pain is the life you're looking for. Just like eating right is painful, working out is painful, learning new things is painful. Life is painful. Life is difficult. Marriage is painful. Kids are painful. I'll keep it going if you want. Life has a lot of pain. And you won't get to experience the beauty of it, though, because children are beautiful and marriage is beautiful, right? Being healthy is beautiful. All these things are beautiful because they're a part of the human experience. We'll never get to experience the beauty of it toward the pain of it, but we can't say in the pain of it unless we know there's a God with us in it because that's what I need. I don't need a God to fix it all. I need a God to be with me in it all. And when I do that, guess what? I'm offering and we're offering things better than gimmicks to the world around us. Now it's attractional, not promotional. This was never meant to be promotional, this church. The church is not meant to be promoted. We get off of our base when we try to promote ourselves. It is sick and gross, and it's just a way to make more money. It is what it is. The church was meant to be attractional. But it's not attractional if we're saying, well, I know more than you. <laughs> And I know how I'm not going to go to hell, but you don't know, so sorry. That's not attractional. What is attractional is how are you getting through this? Well, I have a God who's with me. What does that mean? All I can do is just kind of walk with you on it and talk about it. What's attractional is people seeing you and me walk through life with scars and still somehow have hope. That's attractional. What's attractional is be able to walk through the fires that life offers us and not have to check out and get away from it and not have to numb ourselves out from it. Because that's, listen, numbing ourselves is so easy. But being in it, that's when we get the good stuff. And that's what the world's looking for. And that's hope. That's healing to a world around us. And when we're willing to be in the pain and have God with us in it, we're willing to offer, we can then offer hope to those around us. So here's the question. What are you either trying to avoid that's painful? Or two, what do you keep going through in pain but not inviting God into? Because either way, we're missing out.
We're missing out on who we could become. We're missing out on what God is asking out of our lives to become better humans, fuller humans that have life and life to give others because of our Christ, because of our Lord. So this morning, as you come partake of communion, as you come to partake at the place of the table where the pain was set, remember something. Whatever you're going through, it can be understood. Whatever you think God's ignoring, he actually is trying to see. And when you let that moment, when you take the bread and dip it in the cup, will you let that be a moment to remind you of the presence of Christ in, with, and around you, the mystery of the table? And then go pray with someone. Lift up those things so others can be with you. Let's pray. So Christ, we turn to you, the author and finisher of our faith, the perfecter of our faith, the one who sees us and loves us and knows us, and the one who feels pain, the one who feels pain in the moment, the one who looks down and sees your children of flesh and blood and says, I am of flesh and blood, and I see you. And Lord, I pray that we would find comfort comfort in the pain that we're in, to not avoid the pain, but to realize that's where the good stuff happens. That's where we get refined. That's where the impurities, the dross comes out, and we get to be more fully human. And yet, we need you in it. And so I pray now as we come before you that um, we would be able to meet you once again and know that you're with us. In your name we pray. Amen.